Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain i'm as bad as hell and i'm not going to take this anymore this whole thing is insane this whole thing is insane 300 years ago you'd have been burned at the stake what do all men of power want more power this is now the united states of zombie land this whole thing is insane man is evil capable of nothing but destruction Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy Heresies and welcome to the Desert of the Real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AB Live, audio version for thee in this eternal now and in this red pill cafeteria. Ronnie Pontiac joined the virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, American Metaphysical Religion. Many assume pious Christians founded America, yet the truth is that this entire continent has always been a bubbling stew of religions, many of which are shamanistic and occult. Are there any original American religions? Where is spirituality heading in the 21st century? From Native American ecstatic movements to colonial Kabbalah and Hermeticism, from 19th century spiritualism 
To today's meme magic, we thread a needle to find an authentic American metaphysical religion. Full interview for everyone, as I had a special announcement at the end. Big news, at least for me, and in a way, a way to send magic out into the world. But for all subs, I'll include my past interview with Ronnie's wife, Tamara Lucid, where she goes deeper into the relationship and experiences as Manly P. Hall's main assistance in his later years. She completes a lot of what Ronnie discusses in our interview. Keep in mind that I've recently added the lesson, the characteristics of Mary Magdalene at the Virtual Alexandria Academy. So join now and see Mary in her full impact and Gnostic majesty. Other than that, there ain't that. Let us to our latest AB Live. You'll be ten bears? I am ten bears. I'm Josie Wales. I have heard. You're the Grey Rider. You would not make peace with the blue coats. You may go in peace. I reckon not. Got nowhere to go. Then you will die. I came here to die with you. I'll live with you. Dying ain't so hard for men like you and me. It's living, it's hard. And all you've ever cared about has been butchered or raped. Governments don't live together. People live together. Governments, you don't always get a fair word or a fair fight. Well, I've come here to give you either one or get either one from you. I came here like this so you'll know my word of death is true. And that my word of life is then true. bear lives here, the wolf, the antelope, the Comanche, and so will we. And we'll only hunt what we need to live on, same as the Comanche does. And every spring when the grass turns green and the Comanche moves north, he can rest here in peace, butcher some of our cattle and jerk beef for the journey. The sign of the Comanche, that will be on our lodge. That's my word of life. And your word of death? Here in my pistols, and there in your rifles. I'm here for either one. These things you say we will have. We already have. That's true. I ain't promising you nothing extra. I'm just giving you life, and you're giving me life. And I'm saying that men can live together without butchering one another. It's said that governments are achieved by the double tongues. And there is iron in your words of death for all Comanche to see. And so there is iron in your words of life. No signed paper can hold the iron. It must come from men. The words of ten bearers carries the same iron of life and death. It is good that warriors such as we meet in the struggle of life or death. It shall be life. (laughs) 
Welcome, everybody, and we are live in some way or another. My name is Miguel Connor, and I am your pompadus of Gnosis, that madman across the waters of creation. Great to see everybody here. Already people just flooding into the chat rooms, and I know you're here because you are going to have a great show and a great conversation about some important issues as always and i will hopefully vance will keep repeating this if you have questions in the chat room please do a super chat or ask or write it all in caps or a lot of question marks or uh, do whatever you can to get our attention and we will do our best to give you the question out there in the open so tonight very excited to have ronnie pontiac to discuss his new book American Metaphysical Religion, Esoteric and Mystical Traditions of the New World. And I have the book right here. Of course, I will have the link in the show notes, both on audio when the interview comes out and here on YouTube and other video platforms. Great read. This is the kind of book that you'll want on your shelf because you will go to it a lot for information moving on from now until, well, when this country ends, which could be tomorrow, and the Chinese balloon might explode or something. I don't, I have no idea. Or it could be in a hundred years, who knows? But with us, we have the author, Ronnie Pontiac. Ronnie, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me here, Miguel, and hello, everybody. Great to have you here. And again, yes, it was really a good read. Uh, and with us too, as always, we've got the Moondog Vance, and he's got the tagline, Know It All. Hey, Vance, how are you doing? Oh, knowing it all this evening, <laughs> meaning I know nothing. Yeah. That's, what I, that's the all. All is nothing, so I know nothing. The old Socrates quote, I know nothing. Wisest man in the world. So... Wonderful. Well, other than that, uh, again, for the questions, uh, for housekeeping, we will have some normal, if you would, audio podcast coming out next week. We will have Christopher McIntosh discussing his new book, Occult Russia, also from the great people at Inner Traditions. And you'll probably find that Russia and the United States are kind of similar. They are very multicultural. It's a stew of religions, and there are some themes in it. And after that, we will probably have Jason Horsley, which he will be joining us to discuss his new book, The the Kubrickon, a book on Stanley Kubrick. However, if you are a fan of Stanley Kubrick or you think he's some sort of mystic that is revealing truths uh, secretly, this is not going to be the interview for you. But still, Jason always brings some amazing research and revelations. And at the end of the day, make up your own damn mind. That's all we can do here. So, Ronnie, why don't we get to you? Tell us about American metaphysical religion and how you came to write this uh, very big book. It must have taken you quite a while, huh? Yes, it did. Uh, it started when I worked for Manley Palmer Hall at the Philosophical Research Society. I was his research assistant and also a screener for him. And one of the things I got to do because I had that job was I got to have lunch with him in his vault where he had amazing rare books and manuscripts. I was working on a bibliography of the collection at the time under his direction. And one time when I was in there, I saw this large leather bound tome 
and I I wanted to see what was inside it because I was checking out all the books in the vault. I found them all to be fascinating. To me, it seemed like this was a collection of wisdom and of ideas and of spiritual experiences that people over the centuries had risked their lives to record and to bequeath to us. And so I found them all really interesting. I wanted to meet every single one of these books and manuscripts and for as many as I could to get stories from him about them. But this particular one turned out to be a newspaper. It was a newspaper bound like a book and it was called The Platonist. And it was published in St. Louis, Missouri around the time of the gunfight at the OK Corral. Now, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. And when you, you went into this newspaper, it had translations of Plato by the publisher. It had Neoplatonic translations, Plotinus, Iamblichus, Proclus from Thomas Taylor. It had Abner Doubleday, who was a Civil War general who was said to have fired the first shot on the Union side at Fort Sumter. He was also probably falsely credited as inventing baseball. And he was a vice president at one point of the Theosophical Society. But in this newspaper were translations that he did of Elephas Levi, who was this magus in Paris, in Paris and who was very far from anything I could possibly imagine mattering to people on the frontier of the West at that time. So I asked Mr. Hall about it, and he didn't know very much about it. He knew that someone named Alexander Wilder had worked on it. And we had some books in the library by him with a little bit of biographical information. But the mystery really stuck with me. And I went to uh, different university libraries when I was touring with my band. I would go to bookstores and to bookshops looking for information. And this went on for a long time. It was basically just for myself and, and for my friends at that time. And uh, then there was an explosion in academia. There was a change of philosophy where now it was possible to study esoteric materials and to open up all these treasure troves of information that had just been ignored because people thought that it was beneath them to study the esoteric. And this has only been in the last 20 years or so. And that was an amazing experience to witness all this new information coming out about all of these things. And the thing was that nobody else seemed to know about it except within academia because the books are very expensive, they're difficult to read, very technical. And I decided that I wanted to be a kind of bridge between all this new research and people who have interest in these matters who probably have no idea that all of this new information has been made available. And, and eventually I found out so much about these people and how deeply connected they were to this. This newspaper was connected to the New England Transcendentalists, Emerson. And in fact, all the major Transcendentalists came and stayed with the publisher of this paper I considered him to be the great one of the great Platonists in America. And I also found out that, that Plato and Platonism had been like a fad right before spiritualism. For almost 30 years, there were these big Plato clubs with hundreds of people involved celebrating his birthday. And newspapers would run stories about new books that were being published about Plato. So um, that's just one. And, and by the way, that publisher turned out also to be one of the presidents of the Hermetic Brotherhood of Luxor in the United States. So that, that was like pulling on a thread and that thread led everywhere. 
That is very cool. Yes, your book goes to places uh, or fills in gaps about the occult history of America. As I was thinking, uh, most people want to be interested in uh, occult America, if you would, should have this book. They should have Mitch Horowitz, uh, Occult America, and maybe, since the audience is Gnostic-minded, Harold Bloom's American Religion. And with those Great three, book. and of course, always have access to uh, Manly P. Hall's work, which is now so available online. And it's very cool. For uh, about a year ago, we, uh, we had the pleasure of having your better half, uh, Tamara Lucid, to discuss making the ordinary extraordinary. Great conversation for the audience. I'm going to put her interviews a bonus and audio for all subs, so you can get yeah both sides of the story. <laughs> yeah, well, we know she's right, right? The the, the woman's always going to be right, but just you know, you'll have a balance. But um. You, uh, you were, it's amazing. Yeah. You were in the, basically the library of Alexandria working. It must've been amazing. And so did you ever, you met, uh, Dr. Stefan Heller, somebody who I've met and I've, he's done service, Gnostic service. You met, uh, Marianne Williamson. You were really in the belly of the esoteric beast, huh? Yes. Although I have to say that at that time, the Philosophical Research Society was winding down and I think that's really how I got in there. I think that by the time I got there, it it wasn't filled with illustrious people the way it had been for a lot of its history. It was a really down home kind of friendly place with a bunch of friendly old people who were really happy that a young person or two wanted to to come in there and learn these things. And they were so welcoming and amazing. I mean, they, the books they gave us and gave us advice and led our let us down the path of all this knowledge and we didn't have the internet at that point to look up anything so we were dependent on everyone in that society to to ask them questions and be directed to the right books and and yeah i got to hear great lectures uh and i also was in a, in a kind of environment that represented an earlier era if you will like i was coming out of something very different and it had kind of a criminal background and was a nihilist. And uh, <laughs> as a musician, I fronted a band that was pretty much fascist. And I, I felt that, that I had no social contract. And so I was just going to do what I wanted to. And, and they civilized me just by example and by their kindness and uh, their generosity. Really an amazing place. So, yeah, I was I was very blessed to be able to spend time with him for seven years yeah it's awesome and he saw something in you and that was the ability to do research you're an independent researcher and he just trusted you to do this important work find things where he needed to research all that right well he i'll tell you the story of how i met him please my interest in, in the occult, I'd always been been rather psychic as a, as a child. I came from atheist parents and a family that was, uh, they were all war refugees and they were pretty messed up from it. And I had, I mean, school was terrible for me. Everything was, was just getting my ass kicked everywhere. And so that's what turned me into the bitter shit that I was when I fronted my band originally. And I, I really had a psychic presentiments about things. I, I felt ghostly presences and all of that, but it all turned into nothing but an obsession with Halloween because there was nothing in my life anywhere that reflected those interests. And I did see a book once called Atlantis, Mother of Empires. 
when I was a kid. I desperately wanted to shoplift, but it was way too big to do that. And I wanted to get it for a long time. And a few years later, I was still a kid. I was given some money for a haircut, which I everyone knew I wasn't going to use for that purpose. And I took it to the Bodhi Tree bookstore searching for that book. But what I found instead was an old copy of The Secret Teachings of All Ages. This was the sixth edition, which was kind of a, a, a smaller size of the big giant original edition. The plates were black and white instead of color, but it still looked to me like it was this magical volume from a century or two ago. And to my shock, I found out that he was still lecturing not far from where I lived. And I was afraid to go there because I thought he was just going to look right through me and that they wouldn't want me, a person like me, around there. So I stalled for a long time. And I was going through these weird, like, fears of earthquakes because I had friends who were all strung out on Edgar Casey's earthquake prophecies. And they were all moving to Virginia Beach and pressuring me to go with them because California was going to be in the sea any moment. And, and eventually, Tamara convinced me to, to go down there with him, with her and, and see a lecture on a Sunday morning. And he did something that he do, did to a lot of people. He looked right at me and he said, uh, people suffering irrational fears of earthquakes because of their guilt of how they've misled their lives. Mm. Now, the weird thing is, I found out later when I worked for him that he couldn't see me. Like, this, could, this wasn't a guess because of how I appeared. He, he, at that time, his eyes were very bad. So we were just basically blurs in the audience. And, but I was stunned, obviously, to have this person whose writing I so admired speak right to me a secret about myself that I didn't want to, to admit. And so I wanted to volunteer. And Tamara and I went down there the next Monday and we offered to do whatever they wanted. And they had place for her because she had office skills, but they didn't have anything for me because I had no skills. But they did ask me if I had any knowledge of languages. And I told them that, that many languages were spoken at my house. And she was like, oh, okay. Next day, I got a phone call that Manly Hall wanted to meet me. So I went down there. And when I went in there, there were the women, these old women who ran the place were all standing on either side of him glaring at me suspiciously. And he was sitting behind this beautifully ornately carved Chinese desk. And he was very friendly. He did a W.C. Fields accent and said, come on in and make yourself <laughs> miserable. And I sat down in the chair and he had this big stack of paper in front of him. He pushed it in front of me and he said, this is an alchemical biblio. This is the galley of an alchemical biblio. And I did not know what a galley was. I didn't know what alchemy was. And I did not know what a bibliography was. I had just started reading his book and I was, all these things were new to me. So I, I just kind of smiled at him questioningly. And he said, I want you to edit this for me. And I said, um, Mr. Hall, I, have, I don't even have an education. I don't know anything about any of these things. I, I'm really not the right person for this. And he said, you'll be fine. I'll, I'll show you how to do it. You'll, you'll catch on. And he shoved it over to me. So I, I took it in hand, but by the time I got out of his office, the VP of the place had basically run out of his office through the other door and gotten in front of me, stood there like a linebacker and was like, give me that paperwork. <laughs> and I gave it to her and I said, said okay, uh, I think that's a great decision. Thank you. Uh, big relief for me. But then when I got home, the phone's ringing and his secretary says, Manly Hall, your uh, Manly Hall's office, be there at you know, early morning tomorrow. 
I think it was uh, 9 a.m. That was early morning for me. And I went down there. This time he was in his office alone and there was the galley in front of him. And he told me to sit down. And he said, from now on, you take orders only from me. And he said, anybody says anything to contradict what I tell you, you come and tell me. And then he pushed it over to me. And I said, again, I, I really can't do this. And he said, I will give you a job every morning and then you'll do it. We'll get together for lunch and you can look at the manuscripts and do what you need to do in terms of measurements. And I'll tell you what you need to know. And then in the, in the afternoon, before I leave, we'll go over your work and make sure that everything is right. And, and you'll, you'll do fine. Well, I, at that point, I couldn't say no. I mean, to have that, I mean, it was incredible to be able to have that kind of education offered to me by someone that I admired so much. And that's how I became involved in, in all of this. And that's really how this book happened because without that moment, this book never would have happened. No, oh, thanks for sharing. And yes, for the audience, uh, the whole stories in Tamara's book where she talks about, yeah, Ronnie and, and uh, Tamara and relationship and with Manly P. Hall and all that. And uh, somebody at the chat was asking, was very interesting, said you were in a band. What band is it? Um, the band that I mentioned, I'd rather not, I'd rather not say what the name of that band was. Sure. Um, okay. I am in a band that I've been in for a long time. Uh, that started out as a riot girl band called Lucid Nation, but we've pretty much gone through every, we just like deconstructing music. So if it's got a guitar in it, we've, we've tried to, to wreck it. All right. Awesome. And you've done documentaries too? Yes. We've produced some documentaries um, on, we did one about Mia Zapata of the Gits, who's a murdered singer, uh, an incredible story, an incredible band that never got to happen. And we did one about um, Los Aldeanos, who are an incredible hip hop team, a couple of poets in Cuba um, and who were totally underground and yet were very influential and super popular, really great music, too. And uh, we did one about well, we've, we've done you can see them online. She recently did one as an associate producer about the women of Standing Rock called End of the Line, the women of Standing Rock that was just nominated for an, an Emmy last year. Very cool. Yeah, I know. I saw that on her, on her feed, and I just need to. It's on my list of watching too. My very long list is, you know, you get older, you try to do more work than watch TV. If you know what I oh, mean, because yeah. time is short. And uh, all right, well, why don't we get to your book again? Uh, it doesn't say American metaphysical religions, so people might be asking, can there really be an American metaphysical religion after all? Again, as I said, this this country is a stew of religions, and that hasn't changed from the beginning, and it's not going to change in the end. So what can it be, uh, Ronnie? Well, it's a technical term from academia, actually. That That is the field of study now for, for all the stuff that's in my book. Um, they call it American metaphysical religion. It, it was a term coined, I think, by Bloom. Oh, and yeah. and it was... Uh, one somebody that was very much influenced by him who wrote the great bedrock study in this field uh Catherine Albany is a really wonderful writer her book is called Republic of Mind and Reason and I highly recommend it to everyone I mean she covers the whole hermetic history of America going all the way back into Europe and 
and then shows you how it comes into, into the present. A really wonderful book. And she just published one that came out this month. I know part of the title is, I think it's called The Pursuit of Happiness, an Anglo-American Metaphysical Religion. I have not read it yet, but it's bound to be incredible. And part of what she's saying in that book is that, that, that what American metaphysical religion is, is a new way of approaching religion. That, that in a sense, the pursuit of happiness is the American spiritual quest. And if you look at, at the patriarchal religions, the pursuit of happiness is a, is a questionable pursuit in, in them because it, it's filled with the potential for sin and, and for wrong action and wrong thinking. But in America, they're developed this, I mean, let's use the example of Christianity. So European Christianity for a very long time all the way up into the Calvinists was about the idea that you're very probably damned. Life is meant for suffering. If you are not damned, that's totally up to God. And even if you behave great, God may not give you that grace, but you better behave great because if God was going to give you that grace and you do something wrong, you'll lose it. That attitude, poverty is, is positive. If you're wealthy, it's very hard to get into heaven. Uh, be peaceful. Now, all of a sudden in America, we have a very different Christianity. And it's not only in America. There were certainly movements before that in Europe that had similar goals, but not in the dominant way that this has occurred in America. And here the idea is more, well, if you're in good with God, you're going to be happy. You're going to be rich. You're going to be in harmony with nature. You're you're in, you're in the on the right team here, and if you're poor, well, then you're doing something wrong. You're not doing God's will. That's a revolutionary idea that that God wants us to be happy. That's part of what American metaphysical religion may represent. Now, is it a religion? As I say in the book, it's way too early to say what it is, and there's a big argument in academia about what it is. A lot of people think that it's it's nothing. It's just an umbrella term for a bunch of disconnected superstitions. It's basically bricolage or collage, right? <laughs> yeah. There are also a lot of people who say that that maybe it's the beginning of religion in the way that that the Aryan conquerors wound up practicing the religion of those they conquered in India, or the way that that the Romans eventually became completely involved in Greek culture after they conquered Greece and made it their own. It could be that eventually America has a, a culture, a religion of its own that's strongly influenced by the indigenous people, but also fed, nourished by all these other traditions that came here, all these outsiders, all these explorers, all these people who left countries where they were being told how to live so that they could experiment with what they thought was the right way to live. That's our heritage in this country. And so it, it's almost, I think of it as the shadow of America. It's a funny thing because we've all kind of been living in America as, as Ginsburg used to spell it with the KKK, right? And, <laughs> and we were looking at, at a militarized state. We're looking at, at media and, and we're, we're looking at manipulation on a massive scale and no one knows what exactly is true. And it's, it's a high stress situation for everyone. But you, you would think that was America's shadow the empire, right? But no, that right. is the overt America. The mm -hmm. shadow of America, I believe, is documented in my book. 
It's all these individualists. It's all these people who are following a different path, combining things, being courageous about exploring their heritage of spiritual history and, and sharing information with each other and being influenced so that, so that even traditions that, that had been passed down in great purity, like the, the Kabbalah come to America and they get mixed up with all kinds of things. Yeah, the, the Quakers and the Protestants love their Kabbalah, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. and the alchemy and, and the whole early period of America is filled with alchemy. The early Harvard and early Yale had alchemical laboratories and, and their alchemists were the, the presidents. Uh, the, in fact, to show you how strange this interface is, we think of the pilgrims. We've been kind of brainwashed by Disney and by old-fashioned ideas about history into thinking of the pilgrims as a certain kind of purity and that they, were, they have the best goals. And, and as I document in my book, we have a lot of alternate history about them, especially seen from the point of view of Tom Morton, the, the pagan pilgrim, about what they were really like. And but even if we don't look at that for right now, we just say, well, what about the purity of their Christianity? Mm -hmm. Well, John Winthrop, who was the first governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, his son, John Winthrop, the younger, when he moved here to follow his father, he was sending over crates full of alchemical equipment and books that used to belong to John D that were mm -hmm. marked with John D's Monus Hieroglyphica. I mean, on one level, this is like a teenager spray painting swastikas for on the <laughs> luggage that's heading to Israel with his family. Yeah. It's it's a very strange, but it didn't cause any kind of a reaction because alchemy was okay. And alchemy was both a the beginnings of chemistry, a, a physical science, and it was also a spiritual science because many alchemists said that unless you have the purity within you you would not understand the secret of the philosopher's stone and be able to accomplish the transmutation of lead into gold. Only a pure soul with divine inspiration could accomplish that. So Harvard and, and Yale were, in a sense, hotbeds of mysticism in their birth. Very interesting. And also, too, as you write, hermetic magic was abundant with colonialist, colon, colonialist pilgrims. And I mean, we do have uh, evidence of uh, papers with hermetic magic and all that, right? So Hermes was around. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The, well, a lot of it coming through the Rosicrucian influence, too, as well, uh, and through the Paracelsian influence. I mean, everybody's coming back to the Neoplatonists and the Hermetica, right? That's really, that's what's informing Agrippa. There's a lot of Iamblichus in Agrippa. Uh, there's there's, there's a really the birth of ceremonial magic in Iamblichus, I think, in the, in the Western tradition. And so all these people in all these different places and times in the Western tradition have been calling back to some basic texts. And certainly the Hermetica are, are one of those basic texts. So when the Rosicrucians come over to Pennsylvania and there's, there's a whole... When using that term, I, I kind of almost want to put quotation marks around it because the definition of Rosicrucian is, is something that's very fuzzy. But let's yeah. say people who identified with Rosicrucian ideas and self-identified as Rosicrucians and put those ideals to work in their communities, they came out here bearing hermetic ideas. And, and it wasn't too long before these blossomed through people like Randolph, right, who goes to Europe 
and, and picks up all kinds of information there, but generates a whole new approach. I mean, by the end of his life or in the second half of his life, he's, he's writing science fiction and he's talking about intervention from space and ideas that were really something a hundred years almost ahead of their time. Not that much, but, but let's say 50 years ahead of their time. And, and so he's practicing actual forms of ceremonial magic and mixing it with sex magic and applying these hermetic ideas in ways that they, they had not been applied so, so overtly in the sense that he wrote books in which he explained how to do these things. So uh, I also think that, that in America, we have an unusual mixture of um, a liberation politics of people struggling for liberation. So, so people who have been treated badly in their home countries or because of their color or because of their gender, who in American spirituality have pioneered new approaches to it. I think Randolph would be an example of that because he's actively working in, in movements for liberation. And at the same time, he's, he's redefining Rosicrucianism and applying hermetic ideas in ways that they had really not been applied before. And women use spiritualism to accomplish the same thing, that, that mediums were mostly women. And although they were allegedly, they were channeling male spirits, they, they were women who suddenly had the power to stand in front of an auditorium of men and tell them what they were doing wrong. Mm -hmm. Something they could never have done without that. That's something I find fascinating about uh, American metaphysical religion is how often it's involved in liberating countercultural moments. Yes, indeed, and you give a lot of examples. And uh, do you agree, have you thought of this, how when we're talking about homegrown American religions, uh, for example, like music, I think jazz is the only American really music, but religion, you have the Church of Latter-day Saints, uh, you've got Scientology, you've got A Course in Miracles, you talk about all these religions, and these religions are extremely Gnostic, and I'm wondering, well, the pursuit of happiness is not a Gnostic ideal, if anything. It's, it's pretty evil, maybe ecstasy, but it's, so have you ever wondered why it could be this Gnostic uh, vibe in this country? I, that's an interesting question. You know, Bloom actually spent a lot of time on that mm -hmm. because he, he said that America, that Amer true American religion was Gnostic. Yeah. But it's not Christianity as we know it. It's something else. And it, it most resembles Gnosticism. And for instance, he referred to the New Age as California Orphism. <laughs> yes. And so I would I would use the example of 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 Orpheus and Dionysus, who are so intimately connected in those mysteries, but who represent very different things. Orpheus is is a it's, this is a religion where this is a world of forgetfulness and of suffering. And I want to remember that I'm an immortal soul and I want to get out of here and not have to come back. Dionysus is having a party. <laughs> He's having a great time here. And, and I think this, this takes you back to uh, the Egyptian origins where you, you could have very strict aesthetic periods where the priests were in control and, and the idea was that there had to be a very controlled society. And then you had times um, where there were these explosions of, of liberation and of, of arts and culture, like under Hatshepsut, when, 
the, the worship of Sekhmet was creating these giant parties that resemble festivals that we might have today for electronic dance music, except yeah. they got a lot wilder. <laughs> so I think that within Gnosticism, there's, a, there's streams of both. I think that there is, yes, and definitely in Christian Gnosticism, there is more on the, on the side of this is a world of suffering. This is a trap. This is the, the demiurge and the, the archons. They want to keep this illusion going. They want to keep your soul imprisoned in, in this, this nightmare. And, but there are also traditions where the realization, in a sense, the way you free yourself from the archons is through the realization of the ecstasy of life. Yeah, and, exactly. and this relates to the, the, I think, to the Chinese secret of the golden flower, which very briefly, so insulting to say something like that about that, that text, but, but something that I hope will be useful to people is the idea from that text that when the soul becomes involved in the body, so let's call that part of the soul, even though the soul remains unified, the lower soul. The lower soul is stuck in the body. It's claustrophobic. It's going through the torture that Aristotle uh, used to describe the angst of the soul in the body, which was that Etruscan pirates used to tie captives face to face with a corpse. And so Aristotle said, that's what it feels like for a soul to be in the body. Now, identified with the body and busy keeping all these separate little things organized and working and functioning in a harmony, in a, in a beautiful musical-like harmony that we know as health and as, as, as existence, this, this, there's a kind of, of, I want to get out of here. And identifying with mortality and the fear of what's out there, fear of death, fear of the world being this big place that's going to roll over us and it will go on and we will be gone. And then if you can awaken to an awareness of the part of your soul that is not busy doing that, isn't chasing things in the material world or reacting, trying to escape things in the material world, and the material world provides plenty of reasons for both, right? You, you get instead the idea of, wow, I'm an immortal soul. I'm here in this incredible mass creativity. Of, what is this thing I'm in? I don't even know. <laughs> and, but what a, what a wonderful thing this is. I mean, there's so much beauty in it. There's a lot of suffering too. Okay, uh, how can I help to, to alleviate suffering and bring about more of the good? And can I appreciate and cherish every moment of it as this wondrous mystery that I'm experiencing that I know is a temporary thing that is just passing me by moment by moment and and my what I am remains, and this experience I will have and take with me, and I will study it, and I will learn from it. But right now, I just want to experience this incredible mystery. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. That's really well said. Yeah, I think you nailed it. I'm glad you brought the ancient Egyptian part. It's always essential to Gnosticism, even if many scholars are still stubborn about this. And I think I think a lot of it has to do with 
we take this for granted, but when people came to this country, even Native Americans, this country is a place of extreme weather, just like the Egyptians had to be so mindful about the weather. United States is uh, where I live, blizzards, people die all the time, That their car breaks down and it's minus 20. Uh, obviously, the heat, hurricanes of the south. Uh, you guys may be in California, but you're one drought or one techno tectonic plate away from being wiped out. So I think when people come to this country, they know that nature is really out to get you. And perhaps that gives that sort of Gnostic vibe that's ingrained in Americans' DNA. Just a theory, just something mm -hmm. I'm playing with. So Yeah. But, but somebody who was came from Europe, yeah, the weather here is, we get used to it, but it's insane anywhere you go. <laughs> uh, and uh, Vance, do you have a question uh, or uh, from you or the audience? We have uh, one question um, from Mark Attic slash FBS Stillet. Not sure how to pronounce that. Um, Ronnie, I'm not sure um, what he's assuming about you here with this question, but uh, I'll just give it to you and you can go for it. Uh, what kind of forces have you witnessed coming through? Uh, in other words, I guess, assuming that oh, wow. you channel or, you know, do seances or whatever it is that you use to communicate with the other side and, or is it all neutral field expressing channelers intense, good or bad? I'm not sure what that last part interesting. means, but there it is. Very interesting. My personal experiences, which had to do mostly with, with being fortunate enough, for example, to meet a, an amazing medium whose name was Edward A. Monroe. Um, very high-level stuff, a lot of health stuff that was mind-blowingly accurate. And I got to spend a few years exploring his work and, and meeting other people and finding out what kind of impact he had on them. It was also an extremely, whatever it was he was channeling, extremely intellectual and also, incidentally, very, very interested in what we're now calling American metaphysical religion. And I, I used to actually have conversations with uh, whoever I was talking with about that subject back in the day, just out of curiosity, trying to find out about things like the Platonist. And a lot of the information I got did turn out to be useful. I've, I've had a few personal experiences, uh, things that, that I, I wouldn't explain in this kind of a public setting. Uh, they were more or less innocent experiences, uh, a, a father who died, who made his presence known in a very undeniable way, mm. um, kinds of experiences with friends. Uh, for instance, Tamara having a strong message involving one of our engineers, our sound engineers, when his mom died. And she she doesn't like that stuff, but it was so insistent that she relayed the message and he he said, oh, my mom wasn't like that at all. And I went to her funeral and found out that his mom was indeed exactly like that. And the message made sense when he when he explained it to his aunt. And so those kind of, of weird anomalies that happened almost to everyone uh, have happened to me, precognitive dreams and all of that sort of stuff. Now, if the question is about the quality of mediumship in, in terms of, of, you know, the neutral field, is there a... I think the problem is we have a tradition in spiritualism. We are told that mischievous spirits get in there, that they they really they want to cause trouble. 
they they want to fool people they they want to take advantage of situations is that true or is that a sublimation of the fraudulent mediums we're blaming it on the spirits i'm not the fraud the, the spirit is don't know but certainly there are a lot of frauds out there and it is are there fraudulent spirits so that cuts to the question of are all spirits good in other words we pop out of the body we're free from the obstruction of it and are we back to our sane selves and we're okay or are there spirits running around who are evil, who are people who never learned not to be evil and they continue to be evil and have to continue to work it out? I have been pretty lucky in having good experiences, but I can tell you and having been Manly Hall's screener that I ran into situations that seemed to indicate that there were unseen presences, forces that, that did not intend good in situations and seemed to be attracted to problems that people were going through and, and seemed to seek to exasperate the problem or to perhaps even co-experience it in some kind of parasitic way. And I, you can feel it. I mean, when you're in the presence of these things, there's like this density and this kind of prickly feeling that you get on your skin. It's, it's strange. You, if, you, if you run into it, you don't forget it. So I hope that answers the question. I think that one has to be very careful with mediumship. Some wonderful activities have happened. Uh, I write about Stuart Edward White and his wife, uh, Betty, the, the other Betty White, who are, in my opinion, probably the most incredible story of mediumship ever. And were once very famous, but now are almost completely forgotten. Uh, but their story is incredible. And, and the, the information they brought back in their own personal story is as inspiring as anything in American metaphysical religion. And it all started with a Ouija board. So you never know what a Ouija board can lead to. But on the other hand, there have been a lot of bad experiences. And a big part of my job as, as Manly Hall screener was dealing with people who had opened doors in ways that they did not know how to close and it was impacting them negatively. So I always advise people to be careful and to, to be open-minded and grounded and, um, never in a rush with any of this stuff no i think Very it's good. a great answer yeah, yeah that was that was a the other question i had because you kind of answer about the spirits and being mischievous uh i've always said that uh and we just talked about it a lot of these pilgrims brought hermes to these shores and these egregores or these portals stay open you can make an argument that the founding fathers were more heavily relied more on Hermes than Jesus or Moses or all that. And of course, in the Native Americans, the trickster is almost as important as a ruling god from the coyote to the rabbit. I mean, their stories Keep like, yeah, it, they mirror like Prometheus or Hermes or all those guys. This well, it's is also the land of the tricksters. Yeah, go ahead. Well, here's an interesting take on that. I, I, I like to follow this. I mean, it's sad, really, but in I look mainly in my book at the Northeastern tribes. And among them, there was a god named Cheapy. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was taken by the colonists to be their devil, but that's really wrong. He was a classic shaman god. He could cause a lot of trouble and cause a lot of suffering, but he also brought good things and he could save the people and bring healing and medicine. And so he, he if you developed a relationship with Cheapy, you could have a wonderful life being guided by Cheapy who would share wisdom with you. But if you ignored Cheapy, 
And if you lived a, a bad life, and in fact, at one time, if you were collaborating with Caucasians, that was enough reason for Cheapy to hate you, then you were going to be suffering and go through all kinds of harm. And there's very early records of, of colonial people interested in spiritual topics who knew indigenous people saying, damn it, I, we, can't get, we can't get them to stop worshiping this cheapy. <laughs> and eventually what happens is cheapy, of course, in, we have the, the plagues that, that swept through America and killed so many. Mm-hmm. And we have Christianity sweeping through and industrialization in its very early forms. And, and so within about a, a hundred years, I would say 150 years, cheapy becomes a story that's told to scare children by mm. usually indigenous nannies who are brought into white families. And so if the kids don't do what the nanny tells them, cheapy will come in the night and take them away. So this, I think, illustrates the way that these these now here's another thing. Cheapy comes back even later among spiritualist women as an occasional what they call portal keeper or gatekeeper. This is the spirit that is supposed to help the medium find the spirits that people are seeking. And and sometimes Cheapy would play that role. So in a, in a weird way, Cheapy gets integrated into the American psyche although he's at ever less powerful levels. And I think that, that, that you're right in that, well, what America, I mean, America, you started with, with uh, especially on the European side with so much baggage, right? I mean, they were sending over criminals and they were, they were sending over, they didn't want the pilgrims anymore. And, and so it's it's kind of a place where people with a lot of problems came <laughs> and it's reflected in i think in the religions and the way that people treated each other and i tell the story of this guy thomas morton who i think of as the as a great lost founding father because <laughs> he represents an america that could have happened again america's shadow and he he was here as a saint at the same time as the pilgrims when they first arrived but he was a royalist a cavalier he got here when he was 50 years old and he opened a trading post and he named it Marimont. And this was a pun because there's a Latin pun in that for male genitalia and also at Mary, you know, Mary Mounting, typical English Shakespearean era body, like yeah. to drink. He wrote fart jokes and all that. Right? Wrote <laughs> fart joke. First fart joke, as far Ever. as I know, in American history. And, and also the first neighbor who was arrested for having a rowdy party in American history. <laughs> and so he opens up this place and it's a very different kind of a trading post because he's very fair with, with the indigenous people. He's fascinated by their religions and their dreams and their families, how they live. And he, he admires them. He wonders if they're not living a better life than people are living in Europe. And so they come to trust him. Uh, the pilgrims don't like the competition, but they're also afraid because he's selling them guns ostensibly to protect themselves from the tribes that are coming in because as disease is spreading, the tribes that are most weakened begin to lose their lands to more powerful tribes. So he's trying to help them out as much as he can. And he decides to have a May Day party. And he finds this incredible yellow pine, this super tall one, and they they strip the bark and it's glowing golden. They, they put ribbons all over it and 
they they raise it up and they invite everyone pirates trappers um i mean you name it i mean anybody in the area was welcome there outlaws indigenous people and everybody showed up but it was understood this is a free zone nobody picks on anybody there's no crime here everybody takes care of everybody so they would have these big parties and he he wrote a special poem a kind of song for it where it was was addressed to aphrodite the pilgrims got wind of this and were just horrified i mean to them this was <laughs> devilish ritual on the edge of the devil's continent they and, were playing the beastie boys and all that exactly <laughs> and and so and in fact he did fight for his right to party both in court and <laughs> and personally but he was overwhelmed by by the pilgrims the number of them and the industriousness and eventually by the politics of it they treated him horribly they starved him they froze him half to death they they tried to kill him by sending him on this this boat journey uh they they were just cruel and they destroyed Maramont and they brought down the the uh maypole and the maypole was supposed to be a yearly tradition it was on this beautiful round green hill overlooking the atlantic and i'm just haunted by the idea that that America could have been celebrating May Day instead of celebrating Thanksgiving, maybe both, but you know. Yeah, no, I agree, and yeah, all hail, all hail, cheapy and the trickster. Because again, as your book shows, this country had a lot of hucksters and spiritual frauds, but even the true spiritual people aren't they like a lot of times like carnival showmen, and they're just out you know really bombastic i mean it's it's different in the united states in a lot of ways right we have to be yes extrovert and wild and it's okay if we rip you off sometimes you know that's what tricksters do yeah <laughs> a lot of showmanship a lot of 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 stealing definitely plagiarism and a lot of just uh, claiming that that one has gotten the information from some mystical source that legitimizes it while just making it up all of those kind of things. But one of the things that the book taught me was that even the fraudulent ones, the most fraudulent, some of them actually had some wisdom to share. Mm -hmm. It made me realize the complexity of human beings. That It's very convenient for us because there's so many teachers, there's so many things to read, there's so much to absorb on the spiritual path, especially now with access to it through social media and everywhere online with all these archives. We don't know where to start and there's not enough time in a lifetime to just read the best of the holy texts. So, but the thing was that, that it's almost like, like all of this information that's now so obvious and available at, at one time was all hidden and secret. And people didn't realize that other people believed these things. And I believe that that's kind of going on now. So one of my, going back to the idea of American metaphysical religion one of my ideas about it is that it's a, it's kind of, maybe it's a, sort of a religion without self-awareness. And, <laughs> and yes, the practices are different. I mean, we're not all doing the same things. We're not all using the same omens or worshiping the same deities or, but yet there's, there's a recognition. We, we do recognize each other. We do understand that we're on these outsider paths. But what happens when the realization occurs that the outsider path isn't an outsider path? It's been deliberately suppressed. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's a gigantic, it's already a gigantic religion. It's just that people don't realize it. They feel sheepish about it. Oh, I'm, 
I'm doing this crazy stuff. Um, I did. It's it's just. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was just clearing my throat. <laughs> ah. Well, I'm seeking guidance. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you're 100% right. And what about the idea, too, the theme I'm getting and you talk about towards the end is that American religion is very much about, again, we get to the Gnostic, peeling back the veil. Or let me back up. It's apocalyptic in both ways. It's about removing the veil and trying to talk to the spirits, whether it's Native American spiritualists or medics. And it's also about some end of the world grand finale, the show, you know what I mean? The climax mm -hmm. of the show that is history and God's plan. So is that a fair thing to say that re American religion is very apocalyptical? Yes, it continually reappears. And and it, it's funny because it reflects, I, I think, Rosicrucianism in a big way. Because all these, these wonderful people claiming to be Rosicrucians or support Rosicrucians in the 1600s who were helping to engineer the beginnings of science and of, of esoteric religious practices becoming more public, they, they were not really so much aware that, that they were trying to improve the world for everyone. They were aware that the world was going to end at any minute. And they believe that before the world ended, all knowledge would return, that the knowledge that Adam had lost would, would be given back to all human beings. So by discovering as much information as they could through science, they were hurrying up the end of the world. Now, not all of them felt that way. I, I, I've just been finishing a book. I actually finished the first draft the day before yesterday. Um, that right now I'm calling Rosicrucianism, Rosicrucian origins in context. There's just a lot of new research about that. And it seems to me that some of the Rosicrucians made it very clear, including probably Andre. We're not sure who wrote the manifestos, as, as you all probably know. But but I think that that there was a political dimension to this where the apocalyptic language was being used to describe the end of the old order and the beginning of something better. So it was an apocalypse for the Pope. Mm -hmm. It was an apocalypse for the Holy Roman Emperor. But it was it was a new dawn for the philosopher king and the new enlightened order that would rise from this outsider approach. And this, this was the essence of Rosicrucianism. So at Ephrata, where people were, they built this beautiful community and they, they, they ate a special diet to be able to sing these brilliant songs that were being written by the master of the community. And they had telescopes, some of the earliest telescopes up on top of the building, the tallest building they built so they could watch the stars. And this is such a romantic image. We tend to think, oh, wow, look at that. There's science. You know, these guys come over here to practice freedom of religion. They're looking at the stars through their telescope but they were literally looking for signs of the end of the world. Mm. Yeah, they were waiting for something. Yeah, and uh, as Gary Lachman wrote, the Rosicrucians might have been a pious fraud, but whoops, Carlos Castaneda, oh, he made up Don Juan. I don't think that negates uh, no. the metaphysics. I think mythology and mysticism, you don't need a real person for it. And I think it's... I think uh, they were... I think they were, I don't think of them so much as frauds. I mean, I guess you could certainly call them that and make a really good argument. <laughs> and, and Gary's the guy that could do it, if anyone. Pious um, I, I, would, I would venture that 
that some of them, and I'm looking at Andre in particular, were something closer to to Beats, to like Ginsburg and Kerouac, mm-hmm. and people. They were they were writing outsider literature that was it was partly satirical, partly a little body, especially the chemical wedding with the right. uh, the naked girl leading him around, saying, "Hey, he'd be in a better mood if I slept with him, don't you think?" <laughs> this it's almost like lampoony stuff, and he called it a ludibrium, which could be translated as lampoon. I think they created this thing as a as an expression of just uh, of hope for the future, because they knew that Frederick and Elizabeth were getting married, and there was going to be this. Maybe we'd have Frederick would become a Protestant emperor, and we would break the power <laughs> of the Pope and all that good stuff. And I think that what happened was that that they they created the manifestos as this expression of exuberance and, and humor. And, and it's also, it's, it's, you know, they say they're going to kill the Pope basically. (laughs) And it's perfect, like hippie literature in the sixties or something in a way. And then what happens is it goes out there. It becomes way more popular than they expected. It goes viral. And the reaction is so wrong. It's partly people who are saying, Oh my God, it's the devil. The devil is, they're the devil's (laughs) Jesuits. And now the devil's everywhere. There were panics in Paris because of the Rosicrucians. Mm -hmm. But there were also other people who wrote pamphlets and books saying, me, I I should be, this is, these are the reasons why I should be in your group. Come find me. And what he was really trying to say, I think, if it was Andre, was do this in your own corner of the universe. The universal reformation happens because each of us turns around to our own little piece of the world and we create the universal reformation there. We don't go out in the street waving our book trying to get into a society of secret masters. That's not what we were trying to do. No, that makes sense. <clears throat> makes a lot of sense. And uh, at the end of your book, you also write that in 2013, 41% of Americans thought we were at end times. That's a huge number. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised it was even more with all oh, the I craziness. Yeah, 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 and of course, you know, the midnight clock is going to strike and mm-hmm. diseases, earthquakes, all that. So uh, Americans, again, they are very apocalyptical and shifting to modern religions. You also have mm-hmm. a, a great section. We were talking yesterday. We had our little chat and I was telling you how now there are, and I've been on these face, Facebook groups where magicians are going to get AI to do sigils and do magic. And one guy's like, if I get this AI to curse my enemy, then I am scot-free. I don't get the karma blowback. It's like people are so funny. I mean, what they, but occultism is going to occult whether we like it or not. So, <laughs> what it's do you all find? Part, yeah. It's people just all part gonna, of the learning process, right? Yeah. Yeah. People are going to find witch talk, meme magic. They're going to find ways to make magic and technology work. Uh, And your book certainly talks about it. Uh, What are some of the more interesting ones you found? I think you've got... uh, Well, there's there's a special... Edison had the idea of a spirit phone. And and, uh, it was a big controversy at one time. Did he actually mean this or was it just a joke that he kind of played on everybody? And eventually they did find some some plans that he'd put together for this thing. And there's a professor now working on something. I think he just completed something called the spirit switch, which is something that it, it's supposed to be something that, that spirits can switch to say yes or no. 
but it's the first step in creating some sort of a communication device. I mean, this guy is focused on how do we set up a way to communicate with the other side? Because if the other side is there, then let's communicate with it. And he's raised millions and millions of dollars. This is a major guy. Wow. I think he's another Harvard uh, professor, although I think he's working in Arizona now. I'm not sure. Um, but but this is a big project, a lot of force behind it and a lot of interest in it. it finally, science taking very seriously this question of is communication possible? Now, I mean, a lot of people find this ironic because they think and they say, well, why don't you meditate if you want to reach the other side or why Buy a Ouija you... board? <laughs> right, exactly. Get a Ouija board. And but it's still interesting that science has approached this and we'll see what what comes of it. A lot of cynicism around it, obviously. Uh, there's also there is a the sigil maker. So there's a website already available where you can go and put up a sigil for anything that you want. And uh, I believe when I wrote the book, there were already 300,000 some sigils created. It's quite an elegant little wow. tool, very simple. And But there's many questions about it. So there are, there are people who say, look, what makes a sigil work is the knowledge and the time that you take to create something special. You have to, to get into harmony with all of this stuff in order to make something that works. You can't just, just screw around and find a shortcut and think it's gonna do anything. But do we know that? Maybe we can screw around. Don't know until people try it. So it's, it's, it is an interesting experiment, this combination. And there's so many other things that, that are being attempted. And of course, it's a giant classroom, right? I mean, isn't this the invisible college of the Rosicrucians? Exactly. Don't we go on TikTok or, or anywhere and find all these teachers, all these people putting this information out there eagerly in a way that if uh, out there, I don't know who's out there amongst the listeners, but maybe you also grew up in an area where you couldn't find this stuff, where people didn't talk about tarot or, or I mean, you would be looked at like you were insane or, or devil possessed. And now it's everywhere. It's on TV. It's it's in the toy stores. It's 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 on your social media site. So I think that's exciting and there'll be a lot of suffering because of it, but also a lot of epiphanies and a lot of ecstasies and and all sorts of learning for everyone. Yeah, I think well said again, Americans got to talk to the dead. We like the <laughs> trickster. We like that Gnostic vibe and we like new worlds in apocalypse. It's, I guess it's in our well, soul. If look at chat GPT and things of that nature. You could look at it as we are actually channeling the aggregate knowledge and interconnected mind of the entire planet or certain cultures. Or, I mean, what are you talking to? I mean, the thing crawls around and gathers ideas and thoughts and puts them together. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's almost amazing. like a Ouija board in itself. It is. And, and you've also got, I think, the, the it's, it's like a toy, and yet it's this potentially devastating economic development yeah. that eliminates all of these jobs. It's an incredible tool that, that liberates anybody to create a masterpiece, to say, uh, just off the top of my head, uh, pre-Raphaelite, um, electric guitar... <laughs> Rosicrucian Buddhist. Now I'm gonna get a, I'm gonna get a painting back, yeah. and I may learn something from. But in a way, it just extends 
one thing that I used to always hear Manly Hall say, he was uh, often approached by people who wanted him to be their teacher, obviously. And he would always tell them, no, he didn't take students, <clears throat> excuse me. But he, he would always say, life is your teacher. Nature is your teacher. Everything that happens around you, the, the results of your experiences, the opportunities that you take, the ones you don't take, everything is your teacher. And I think that, that this is simply another version of that. So there are people walking around who, in extreme cases, perhaps it's apophenia. It's a, a disturbance where they see meaning where there isn't any that's usually associated with anxiety. But it's also the way that some sages live who they experience life in, in synchronicities, in, in, in signals that seem to be happening all the yeah. time that show Omens. them. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. They're 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 on the right path because the world is moving with them. It's it becomes this music, this harmony, and this Pythagoras talked about it. So I think that, that 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 we're all seeking seeking that on a level. And and I think that in the way that the internet has augmented so many activities, I mean I could not have written this book, for example, before the creation of of this this thing that we're all on now. And in fact, there was a golden age at one time that made this book possible when Amazon let you search any book it had all the way through it. So mm. I, I got access to like these $200 academic books for nothing. Wow. And you can't do that anymore because they got smart, but, but it was, <laughs> but you still have archive.com and, and all kinds of other, uh, I don't know if that's .com, but archive. And you've got uh, all kinds of academic sites like academia.edu, where you've got great studies on all this information. And, and it's just exciting how much new perspective is being opened up by people who can get access to things that have been ignored for centuries and who have the training to, to properly present it and, and to to neutrally observe what's available there and give it to the world so that the world can make up its own mind about it. And that's a huge change in academia because for generations, I mean, I write in my book that for a while there, people thought that studying Pentecostals was like crazy. You, you only studied religious institutions, the Catholic church, the, the major Protestant churches, and you never looked at anything esoteric. It was just utterly ignored. And, Papers were, were thrown out and burned because they were useless because they were about this superstitious nonsense. Well, yeah, but it's now, like political parties, right? You know, oh, there's only Democrats and Republicans. There's nothing. Right. Nobody else thinks anything else, right? It's the same right. thing. Yes. Major denomination, same thing. I think so. And I think it's also, it's a very helpful simplification for manipulating large groups of people. And there's good and bad aspects to that. But it's, it does not reflect the reality. And it, it makes, unfortunately, I think our, our politics as well as our, our religious world much, uh, much more uh, severe than it needs to be. So there are many people, you can grow up in a heritage, that's, I mean, that's no better way than to have a tradition that you were born into and you, you flourish in it throughout your life. But for very many people, that doesn't work. And you have this wealth and permission in America 
to search this wealth of all these other traditions to find something that strongly resonates with you. And over your lifespan, you may change what you resonate to, and that's okay. And that's another thing that's rather unique. Even though we've had these, these movements in the past in Europe, and especially among the Neoplatonists, where many different religions were combined in the search for the truth behind the accidents of time and place, which are language and symbolism and all the things that, that particularize the, the experience. And the argument would be that as human beings, our spiritual experiences are the same. We just describe them differently. So one man's Satan is another man's Christ. Very true and well said. And these, are, of course, are uncertain times. We have to have an open mind. I mean, like uh, you write in your book, uh, it's very odd that the uh, symbol of the right-wing QAnon is this guy dressed as a shaman who eats organic food vegetarian and, as you said, believes in the star seed. So new, it's almost like paradigms are shifting. And then, you, as Vance was saying, you add in AI and technology, and it's like you got to surf this stuff. You can't be holding on like scholars did to old, tired paradigms, right? You got to, mm -hmm. you got to ride that wave. And and we have to see where it's going. I, I mean, obviously, it's the younger generations that are going to be taking the reins, and they have grown up in this new environment in a way that we haven't. Mm -hmm. So yeah. their their insights. I find it hopeful that they they seem to to be kind of really relishing discovering all this stuff for themselves and teaching each other and they're they're not really so much concerned with hierarchies and 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 all lineages and all those kind of things they're they're looking everywhere for for what speaks to them and that is quintessentially I think American spirituality very true and for example there's that internet legend of the slender man that two girls made up on social media i think it became almost an attempted murder and years ago my kids started believing in slender man and we could not convince them because again they got into the egregore their social media channels and suddenly this god was created this monster which completely alien to me and my wife but we had to respect it. We had to play. You know what I mean? We didn't I just love, yeah. <laughs> I love, well, they can be these things. I mean, well, I, I like the idea that, that Robert Anton Wilson had of reality tunnels. Yes, exactly. And I think that, that that's, this what's happening right now is a whole bunch of older reality tunnels are collapsing and there are other reality tunnels available. So for instance, to oversimplify, I would suggest that, you know, what's feeding into QAnon community, for example, mm -hmm. a lot of Christians who became frustrated with their evangelical churches, Exactly. a lot of yoga people and new agers who were frustrated by the, the politics of neoliberalism and who found in their interest in teachers like Blavatsky, a kind of openness to to conspiracies and secret organizations that that made them feel that something was going on, maybe something is going on. Yeah. Plus, and, uh, their hatred for pharmaceuticals could be supported. I mean, I agree with that. Exactly, pharmaceuticals. <laughs> oh yeah, I, and I think I think that it's one of the things I, I'm interested in astrology. That's one of my my 
uh, main interest. Manly Hall got me into it. He was a really good astrologer. I didn't believe it when I in that stuff when I met him. And he challenged me to learn enough to debate him and introduced me to a really good teacher. And I didn't, I never bothered to challenge him because I was so blown away by it. But we've been living through Pluto and Capricorn since 2008. And before that, we had Pluto and Sagittarius. Mm-hmm. Pluto and Sagittarius, if you think about those days, was just hot air, Jupiter, go, go, go. Money's everywhere. We're all going to be rich. Yay. You know, it was just. Basically, everyone was writing the the advent of the internet and the computer age, and a lot of wealth was made, but a lot of very questionable decisions were made that resulted in the crash in 2008 when Pluto went into Capricorn, ruled by Saturn, and suddenly it's all about facts and limitations and poverty and government by old men. And traditionally in history, Pluto and Capricorn has been associated with plagues, economic crisis, weather crisis all these classic things. And when you get to the end of a sign, it seems when Pluto's moving through signs, you get to the end of it, it seems like there's a grand finale. And we're in the grand finale right now. We're going to dip into Pluto and Aquarius for spring. And I've been calling it kind of corny, but the Aquarian spring, because we get about three months of experiencing Pluto and Aquarius, and then it goes back into Capricorn for the rest of the year. And then it goes into Aquarius for 20 years. Now, that's going to be very different. The last time that that happened, we had the American Revolution and the French Revolution. So Mm. if there is any attempt to create some kind of an autocracy like everybody's been fearing, there's going to be revolutions all over the place. This, This placement does not support autocracy. The one that's ending supported autocracy. And I would say that if we didn't get an autocracy with Pluto and Capricorn, that we may have passed the test. Pluto and Aquarius is going to be all about people as as statistics and diversity and and everybody's supposed to get an equal chance. It's all going to be about science and science is going to save us all. There will be medical breakthroughs, but there may be a problem with, and this is the reason I bring it up, with pharmaceuticals and, and the idea, and you can see this in some areas already where where between the insurance companies and whoever the medical providers are, people are kind of trapped in the system. And, and it's, it's something that Pluto and Aquarius might look at this and go, well, yeah, it's statistics. It's for, for most people it works and that's good enough. And that, that could be one of the challenges that we face going forward. Um, and I think that another thing about America, however, is that we have a long history of loving every kind of esoteric and quack remedy and trying all <laughs> kinds of stuff. The huckster, healing. the trickster. Yeah. Yeah. And there are brilliant ideas about spiritual healing. I think I shared some of them in the book uh, mm-hmm. that, that really are interesting approaches different or more holistic to, I think they're based on the idea that the spirit is, is stronger than the body, right? That, that you create your body and you run your body as, as, as a spirit. And that therefore, yeah. if you can become spiritually aware, then you can be healthy. Uh, Quimby, who started the whole um, kind of mind cure movement and was a mentor to Mary Baker Eddy and to Christian science, uh, Quimby had this idea that, that health is how the body experiences the eternity of the soul. Mm, love it. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
Definitely beautiful. Well, awesome, awesome. Well, Vance, uh, we probably are towards the end, so maybe just a couple of questions. Uh, oh boy, fun, Remember, fun. if got... they want su if they want super chats, then we get to them. If not, all right, guys, put one. your super chats out there. Yeah, we got five. I've got uh, five stars up here. Um, let's see. Okay, I'm going to pick Devin's question. Uh, does he? Uh, do you think America is in its inception an esoteric slash occulted project? "Quote unquote," they always make the claim of the new world, not necessarily a country. So that's like John D. or Bacon saying the new world. I mean, they're already like talking like Atlantis was the United States. Yeah, well, I look at Washington D.C. is laid out in a weird way, and the Masons and Ronnie George talks Washington about that in the, his book. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I do think that it, in essence, this country is an experiment. Now, is it an experiment created by a specific organization? who's been running it, whether it be Masons or Rosicrucians or the Illuminati or whatever. I don't think so. I think it's been this, this chaotic mass creation, but the motivation has definitely been, I think, esoteric. And the esoteric influence is constant. You've got spiritualists in the Lincoln White House. You've got Washington and, and as a Freemason. You, you, you just have, a, I could go on and on with this. It, it's something that is a constant source in, of inspiration to people in the history of this country. And as the country is being founded at its very founding, so many people who were involved in, in Rosicrucianism, in supporting Rosicrucianism, wound up being involved in the very early efforts toward colonization because they did see this as a potential new Atlantis, an opportunity to, to have a, a place free of the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope. Free yeah, of the I mean, confessional, they used to say, you know, because think of the power <laughs> of the confessional, right? I mean, they had they had access to everything that was going on everywhere. If you had to tell the priest what you were doing, then the Pope knew everything. Yep. Wow. Never, never thought of that. Wow. <laughs> um, here's a good question. Uh, Nancy Bregan wanted to know if you've had any contact with Manly P., all since he left the body. Hi, Nancy. Um, I have dreamed about him. Um, I've had some some pretty cool dreams about him. <laughs> he he comes by and says hi sometimes, um, but That's, I don't know. I, I don't like really spirit contact. Definitely spirit. I contact. haven't I haven't tried to reach out to him. I mean, I'll I'll sometimes if I'm working on something. I'll, I'll be thinking of him or I might say, as anybody might, you know, Hey, help me out. I'm trying to figure out what you meant here, but that's more just, just, uh, I'm not, I'm not deeply faithful about the idea that I can communicate with him that way, but I have yeah. had, I'll tell you one dream that you might get a kick out of, um, which was, uh, we all, we all remember Adam Parfrey. Yes. Uh, Adam Parfrey. Adam Parfrey ran a company called Feral house, which is a wonderful publisher. And he sort of had this great salon in Los Angeles involving all kinds of outsider people. A very interesting person. And, and when he did a book, he published a book about Manly Hall that, that really showed a lot of the warts that, that were apparently there in the earlier days, especially, and, and was going into great depth about, about what his personal habits were and things like that. And there was feelings about maybe he shouldn't have done that, but although he didn't doubt it. And when he passed, 
I dreamt about Manly Hall that night. Mm. And he was mm. in the driver's seat of a really nice car. And he said to tell Adam's friends that he would give him a ride all the way home. He would give the young man a ride all the way home. <laughs> Interesting. Awesome. Yeah, I call them visitation dreams. I've had three of them in my life. So and they're very different than other dreams. And you really feel the presence of the person. Yeah, as if they're really there, and in, uh, unlike any other dream, and my, you know, my it can be my, a joyous feeling, right? Like I, oh, I, it I is it was so joyous to see him. It was yeah. every time I dream about him, I'm just so glad to see him. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, I've had those too. Wonderful. Well, I think we better wrap it up uh, again. Uh, yes, somebody. No, this is Q. Oh, what? Uh, it's ironic. Yes, it's Q ginger beer. I don't know. My wife buys it. I have no idea. I know it doesn't have alcohol. But uh, yeah, <laughs> we better wrap it up. Uh, good questions. Good energy in the chat. Uh, we only covered less than 5% tonight. There is so much more. So much good gnosis in this book. So people go out and buy it. Again, there will be an audio version of this in a day or so. This will be on YouTube. Check out uh, the book. Check out this interview. And as for an announcement, and I had to make, I'm going to make this announcement now. I've talked to Mitch Horowitz because I, again, I've read Occult America. I didn't see this figure in this book. So my announcement, and again, I'm already talking to Mitch about publishing. I'm going to write a book about the greatest magician in the United States, probably in history, and that's Elvis Presley. So I'm going to start mm. this book this year. And you're going to see things about Elvis that you won't believe. UFOs, telekinesis, speaking with the dead, opening portals. I'm going to prove how he and Philip K. Dick's life are very parallel in many ways. So that's the announcement tonight. And Ronnie, hold me to hold my feet to the I fire. Will. I want to read it. I want to yeah. read that. Awesome. Awesome. I will definitely let you know. So that's my big goal this year. I want to join the Occult America crowd and you know, do right to this country because, yeah, there's so much richness and it's it's fun and it's inspirational and it will help people. So let me read a uh, an early draft. <laughs> I will. I will. I'm going to need help. My fictions, but it's been a while. So definitely. Well, awesome. Appreciate. And uh, uh, audience, thank you for uh, coming here. Vance, thanks for keeping us company and keeping the tribe happy down there. Oh, it's great as always. Great hanging with you, Ronnie. Thank you. So good. And good luck you. with the book. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, same. We'll see you yeah. again, I hope. Same here. Yes, yes. We would love to talk more. But again, audience, American metaphysical religion, check it out. And Ronnie, thank you very much. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, likewise. And uh Tamara said to say hi to both of you. Oh, tell her hi back and Send her our regards back. As a yeah. bonus, we will have her interview in the audio version so people can get the whole manly p hall experience so Thank everyone you. take care have a good weekend and as i always say write your own gospel live your own myth and we will talk sooner rather than later good night everyone good night and there you have it you veterans of a thousand psychic wars damn ronnie has stormed the castle gate where the king of occult study rules He's definitely wearing the crown these days. Love his work and his inspirational words. Repeating, this is the full interview for everyone. 
as I wanted everyone privy to a special announcement. In a way, it's a way to send magic out into the world. But for all subs, you will soon hear my past interview with Ronnie's wife, Tamara Lucid, where she goes deeper into their relationship and experiences as Manly P. Hall's main assistants in his later years. She completes a lot of what Ronnie discusses in our interview. Keep in mind, too, that I've recently added the lesson, The Characteristics of Mary Magdalene, at the Virtual Alexandria Academy. Join and see Mary in her full impact and Gnostic majesty. For all non-subs, thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, here in the desert of the real. For all subs, led us to Tamara's touching and personal interview on her relationship with Manly P. Hall. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.